This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Campsite Media. As the fashion director at New York Magazine, I was pitched endlessly on Victoria's Secret. But I didn't see the point. And it just, it never seemed like the right fit for the New York Magazine reader. (laughs) And then in 2018, the world was changing really fast. And in the middle of wondering how to cover the ways in which the world was changing, I suddenly got invited to the Victoria's Secret fashion show. This was a big bombastic runway show with models who all had very similar body types. It felt very outside of the cultural moment. Like all this stuff might be going on, but we're Victoria's Secret. And we're just gonna keep on keeping on. Roll tape, what is Victoria's Secret in three, two, one, go. So I thought, okay, now, now is the time to take these people up on it. I wanna do a story on Victoria's Secret. We made plans for me to spend some time backstage, see the whole production. And this was the only time in my 20 year career at New York Magazine I needed to have a New York Police Department background check before I could go. (laughs) They have to really know who is going backstage. Guys, this is backstage. Because I think it's like a pervert magnet. Access restricted. All of the models were wearing little matching robes, little peignoirs, with their names on them that didn't close all the way, and they each had on, you know, brawn panty sets. And yes, hair and makeup was happening, but it was in a very performative way. And they kept, like, sort of spontaneously breaking out into pillow fights. And it was like this kind of super retrograde fantasy about like what girls get up to when they're alone. And that was clearly what they were trying to just have happen to be going on backstage at their fashion show. You know, but of course, I mean, this isn't a fashion show. This is Victoria's Secret. It's This is Fallen Angel. I'm Vanessa Gregoriadis. And I'm Justine Harmon. Episode 7, Kingslayer. Will you ever break your spell? Heartbreak, Hollywood. How did Victoria's Secret lose its vice-like grip on the culture? It happened, as they say, gradually and then suddenly. And the momentum began not long after Casey Crow Taylor says that she was bullied at work by her superior for serving herself lunch, a claim which Ed Razick vehemently denies. She would eventually lend her voice to the New York Times' shocking expose about corporate culture inside the spectacle. But while reporters were cracking the story and lawyers were building their case against the company to prove they routinely paid women for their silence, Outside of the pink and white striped circus, things had started to look different. And journalists like Amy LaRocca, who opened this episode, were intrigued by the cognitive dissonance 
Why wasn't Victoria's Secret getting this? It's interesting when you see the the peak of their sales was 2017, the same year America went through the Me Too movement and the world went through that. That's Jordan Holman, a reporter at Bloomberg. She remembers watching the culture change and seeing Victoria's Secret nearly buckle under the pressure. If you even go back to their origins and their store experience, you walk in, it's always a little darker in the store, heavily perfumed. And when you think about culture shifting, it wasn't that consumers just wanted like new merchandise and products. They also wanted to make sure that the companies who are selling them are representative of the world. Lots of people would say Victoria's Secret did not respond quick enough to that. Turns out, women liked advertising with regular people better than trying to imagine themselves as flawless, sinewy, airbrushed angels. Now, no one ever lost money when they bet on the insecurity of American women. But making women feel good about themselves somehow worked to move product, too. Here's Amy LaRocca again. The body positivity movement has been around since the Victorian era. It was part of something called Victorian dress reform, and it had to do with getting rid of the corset and replacing it with the bloomers so that women could sort of go out and get the right to vote and breathe at the same time. So the body positivity movement has been around for a really long time. And now body positivity was back in a big way. So the idea of what an attractive body could be was expanding and a lot of very smart retailers, particularly in the lingerie space, were on that because it has been historically very, very, very difficult for women who had larger chests to find attractive, stylish lingerie, right? Like it was just not a thing that anyone made. And there were a lot of women who, you know, had a larger chest who did not necessarily want to, you know, have grandma bras and they were pay for them. You had a bunch of people suddenly realizing that was just money sitting on the table. But it was, you know, this calculation that brands would do that, like, you know, appealing to that customer would make them seem less fashionable or it was someone they didn't want associated with their brand. But that started to go away. And so you had a lot of lingerie brands befriending the consumer by saying, like, we like your body, actually. We don't hate it or think you need to improve it or change it. Now, these brands were, by and large, helmed by women. They were the new antagonist to Victoria's Secret. These brands were aligned in their desire to take down the 800-pound gorilla. The scene started to feel a little like Bombshell, that movie about Fox News' Roger Ailes and all the blonde anchor women who were like, screw you. Or it was kind of like Hustlers, you could say. The movie about the exotic dancers who started drugging the Johns and taking advantage of them. Okay, well, that might be a little far afield. But what I'm saying is this new group of non-Victoria's Secret women were saying, yes, with spreadsheets of new products, we're going to fight you. Because we've noticed that you're promoting models with the look of a child's body with boobs. We've noticed you don't sell a lot of plus sizes. And now we're going to change everything. Retail in general, brands in general, whether they're selling apparel, content, whatever it is, have to marry exclusivity and distribution. That's the ultimate task. That's the most challenging part of selling a consumer something because 
ultimately uniformity is not cool. Ubiquity is viewed as a negative when it hits a certain point. So what's fascinating is historically, Victoria's Secret owned this market, but you can't say that anymore. That was Simeon Siegel, an equity analyst at BMO Capital Markets. He says the smaller labels that popped up, direct-to-consumer, online-only brands, weren't necessarily huge, but they did start to eat away at some of Victoria's Secret's consumer base. We've seen this host of brands emerge. The question is who breaks out, who goes forward. Airy Real is picking your wedgie. Belly Rolls. Sun's out, fun's out. Airy is the intimate apparel brand under American Eagle. It took off when it started to establish itself, kind of like the anti-Victoria's Secret. Being comfortable in yourself, comfortable in who you are. Being wild. Can you feel it now? No stick-thin supermodels. No male fantasy. Airy was the one who took this to other extremes and said, no, people do care about inclusivity. People do care about positive messaging. And we're going to tackle that. And we're going to be the offering for that. And Airy was far from the only brand embracing body inclusivity. There was also Rihanna. This morning, a first look at Rihanna's new collection for her lingerie line, Savage by Fenty. Lingerie is not just about exploiting the female body. It's about celebrating it. And that's what Savage is all about. I wear Savage X for my damn self. But Rihanna had once studied at the U of VS. Get Rihanna, get Rihanna. In 2012, she actually strutted down the Victoria's Secret runway in a pink lace mini worn over a bra and undies. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Rihanna. Infusing her strut with dance moves and confidence so killer that a young Justin Bieber practically salivated into a backstage monitor. I would rather be here than anywhere in the world. But now, she was at the helm of a direct competitor, a brand that prized diversity and let strong bodies fill out their lingerie. Within a month of the Savage X Fenty launch, the entire collection had sold out. Savage X is a brand for every woman out there. When you look at Savage, when you look at Third Love, when you look at Aerie, they are grabbing a different customer that was not being catered to by Victoria's Secret. Victoria's Secret revenues are going down. So there's this notion of, okay, how many people are walking out because there's now another option that seems more attuned with their beliefs? Traditional bra sizing, right? You have B cups and you have C cups. And if you don't fit into one of those, you make do. And we created the B and a half. We basically said there can be this third option for women that's different than what the industry offers. This is Heidi Zak, the co-founder and CEO of Third Love, a non-Victoria's Secret alternative for the discerning woman. Finding the perfect bra is pretty much impossible. I didn't know that half cups existed until Third Love. So what happened when you went to factories and said, we want to make a half size of this? Yeah, they laughed at us and they told us we were totally crazy. And, and look, there is a real reason they did this. We needed new molds to create the cups. It was um, a more complex manufacturing line. Um, it was definitely more expensive on average to do that. And most people said no to us. I mean, I would say almost all of them said no to us. And we were fortunate eventually to get one manufacturer who was willing to work with us in the early days. And then you have that coupled with the fact that 
And, you know, this did truly happen when we were raising money for our first round where people said to us, men mostly, this was 99% men, like, would a woman even buy a bra online? And doesn't she really need to go to the store to get fit? And how would you even build a brand online? Uh, Clearly, women did want to buy bras online. It was super appealing to just order them to your house versus go through all that weirdness at the store. Heidi was right about that. But she had other obstacles. Something we were very aware of was sharp elbows in the space, especially as it related to manufacturing partners. We didn't work with manufacturers who were working with Victoria's Secret because we were worried about that. But there was a lot of power in changing Third Love's branding. Instead of using modeling agencies, they searched for models on Craigslist. And those models weren't wearing 30A size bras like Bridget Malcolm from our first episode. It's so small. I didn't even know you could get bras that size. When a woman in her 50s wrote to Heidi and complained about the models being too young, Heidi flew her in to shoot for the catalog herself. This sort of female-friendly branding is so ubiquitous now, we don't even think about it. But when Heidi was starting out, it felt really new. We, we kind of proved that you could do it, right? And then, you know, you flash forward to today and... Look at the bra market today. Look at how many bra and underwear players there are and how they sell. I mean, it created a different kind of industry and really changed an industry for the better, for sure. More after the break. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So after all these new brands emerged, Third Love among them, these sexy, idealized angels, they didn't seem so alluring anymore. Consumers knew this was a new era, one that should focus on what women want. And what women wanted turned out to be very different from what Victoria's Secret was selling. Even as all those other brands forged ahead, making strides in terms of diversity and inclusivity, Victoria's Secret stayed practically the same. The board was still mostly stodgy old men. And then there was Les Wexner. This is a ladies' paradise. It's nothing to do with men. Still at the top, ruling the roost, and refusing to budge. The brand didn't evolve with the market. They stuck to their guns way longer than they should have. That's Ike Borschau. He's an analyst at Wells Fargo who has studied Victoria's Secret financial wealth for over a decade. You know, I remember stories of people in the company pushing for added sizes, 
you know, we should have larger sizes. Maybe we should have, we should offer everybody more. And I, I, you know, again, anecdotally, I, I heard that he would push back on that and say, that's not who our customer is. Extra large isn't sexy. When we asked a spokesperson for Les Wexner about that remark, he declined to comment. Victoria's Secret was encountering raging headwinds. And then in 2016, Les Wexner shook up the executive team. Les, is, since I've covered the company, I don't think he's ever been on a conference call. So he was kind of always like the man behind the curtain. And he started really getting his hands into the business. He kind of pushed the curtain aside and started you know, taking control of the, of the levers. But when Les Wexner finally stepped out from behind that curtain, he found himself on a very different stage. The world had changed dramatically, especially retail. Whether Wexner had evolved with it, well, that was the question. I'm very open-minded and flexible. So people say the older you get, you get set in your ways. I don't think so. You have to keep being curious. He had some changes to make if he was going to right this ship. His first order of business? Take out what Ike calls the ancillary categories. The products that weren't core to the brand. Like swimwear. Direct from beautiful St. Bart, it's the Victoria's Secret Swim Special. 13 angels and dozens of bikinis will definitely heat up your spring. Wednesday, March 9th. Sure, the swimwear line only sold big seasonally, but it was still a phenomenon. Every spring, girls would flood onto the site to buy the new styles that they'd be mixing and matching all summer long. But Wexner just wasn't excited about it, so he nixed it. It's not sexy supermodels and lingerie, let's cut it. And that was a big mistake. I mean, there was a ton of traffic that Swim brought in on a seasonal basis. There was another major cut that Wexner made around that time, the catalog. You know, that came alongside Newsweek. It's like, okay, look, it's constantly on your mind as a consumer if the catalog's coming into your home and it's just another way for them to brand themselves and to be at the forefront of being like, we are the place that sells lingerie to you. And in addition to it just like advertising products, it also advertised this idea of like the perfect woman. Our girl is to the manner born. And this is who's desirable. Before it was discontinued, Victoria's Secret was printing approximately 300 million copies of the catalog each year. It was a powerful marketing tool, but it was also pricey, around $150 million every year. And consumers just weren't using it. By this point, shopping from home had gone completely online. Mail ordering? Come on now. So people, and specifically younger consumers, were determining their shopping choices outside of this like catalog ecosystem that retailers had really relied on. But that decision, to nix the catalog, it had an unintended ripple effect on Victoria's Secret's 1,200 brick-and-mortar stores. Clearly, their consumer liked it. It was a traffic driver. It was something that she got and received and used as a way to push her into the door. And when you've got 1,200 doors that are going to rely on a steady stream of traffic, you know, cutting it doesn't make a lot of sense. At the same time, Victoria's Secret started moving away from its core product, there was this whole shift away from what their bread and butter was, which was these wired, expensive push-up bras that are adding, you know, one, two, three cup sizes uh, because every woman has to, you know, have three extra cup sizes, I guess. Like Third Love and other brands, Les Wexner decided that Victoria's Secret should introduce a new product, the Bralette. It's all 
rock and roll. <laughs> no padding. Being free. Yes. Let the bra show and just bring it on. <laughs> A bralette is kind of like a training bra or a sports bra that doesn't smush everything in. Just keeps your cleavage right at sea level. Bralette. It's all you need. Les really wanted to aggressively compete in bralettes. So now you're introducing this non-core item. You don't really have the branding to back it. And on top of that, the, the cost of a bralette, I think, is... Again, I, I, should, I, I don't shop at Victoria's Secret, so I haven't been in there in a while. But, you know, 15, 20 bucks versus a push-up bra, which is like 60 to recap, Les Wexner had killed the Victoria's Secret catalog, the direct-to-consumer mailer that regularly tempted loyal customers from their doormats, and then, after denying the women the simple pleasure of a bra without underwire for years, they began hawking shapeless boob sacks to the masses. He was basically telling TC to pack her hot tools and her Louboutins and buy her sexy time outfits elsewhere. Hello, bombshell. But somehow, Victoria's Secret, which did not respond to requests for comment, was still surviving. They were still moving a hell of a lot of product. The bralette was going to be the ultimate, it was going to be the Kingslayer, right? The bralette was going to be Victoria's Secret end. And it didn't happen. That's Simeon again. I think that Victoria's Secret has been lambasted in the press for many years as being a dead brand. I have a very hard time calling anything that sells $5 billion dead. It just doesn't compute. It's so easy to be philosophical and say what they're doing makes no sense. The problem is the, reven the revenues continue to argue otherwise for them and, and for all of us. So Victoria's Secret may sell $5 billion of merchandise a year, may look like a very alive brand, but profits tell a different story. And though Victoria's Secret was selling thongs galore and raking in a lot of revenue, the costs on the back end were bigger. That thong cash, the company wasn't taking it home. One big reason? The Victoria's Secret semi-annual sale is on now. Save on bras, panties, pink, swim. They were telling people, here is a brand that you know so well that is now cheaper than it was before. And you just got to be there. So as soon as those prices came down, people walked into the stores. The sales always felt like a success. People flooded the stores, told their friends, a seemingly healthy, robust business. But narrowing margins? Some considered it short-sighted. Sales are a quick hit versus the long-term health, i.e. versus the profitability. And I think that it's a very hard drug to pull back from. They're selling apparel, they're selling lingerie, they're selling cloth. You sell $5 billion of cloth, you have to make money. Around that time in 2018, Wexner gave an interview that was puzzling. He told the Wall Street Journal that smartphones were a fad and that the real money was in malls. And I think what he said was, people are always going to love going to malls, and actually the interest of smartphones is soon going to start fading. And you really can't make that kind of stuff up. I mean, that wasn't 10 years ago. That was 2018. I read the article and then I sent it to my team, and I remember just kind of thinking to myself, like, wow, like, um, that's probably not the right way to think about the evolving world that we live in. And so to hear your leader say things like that, you, you kind of know that you're, you're kind of off kilt a bit. More after the break. Wexner was running things, trying to make Victoria's Secret work. 
some of his moves and his comments were questionable. In fact, the New York Times reported that one day in Columbus, an employee asked him about retail and body diversity, and he made a joke. Nobody goes to a plastic surgeon and says, make me fat. But despite all this, the brand was still the brand, raking in billions, plenty of time and opportunity to correct the course. But then there was big news. Good morning. I'm Jeff Berman, United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York. Today, we announce the unsealing of sex trafficking charges against Jeffrey Epstein. Federal agents searched Epstein's New York home last night. He's scheduled to be in CEO Les Wexner facing an onslaught of criticism for his relationship with sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Later saying he was... Wexner's relationship with Epstein wasn't ever a secret. But now, Jeffrey Epstein was an international pariah. And the number one thing journalists wanted to know? Who else might have been in his sex trafficking ring? But the number two thing that they wanted to know, where did Epstein get all of his money? Because Epstein was staggeringly wealthy when he was arrested. He had $559 million, a half a billion bucks. Here's Gabe Sherman from Vanity Fair again. When all the Epstein revelations started coming out in 2019, you know, Wexner positioned himself as a victim. And he said, oh, Epstein stole vast sums of money from me. Now, according to the L Brand CEO, Epstein misappropriated millions of dollars from him and his foundation. Now this letter but from Wexner, if someone stole $10,000 from me, I'd call the cops or I'd call the FBI. Like the idea that Wexner allowed Epstein to steal millions of dollars and then didn't try to prosecute him just doesn't make sense. Being taken advantage of by someone who was uh, so sick, so cunning, uh, so depraved um, is, uh, is, is something that I'm embarrassed that I was even close to. Um, this was all just such a strange situation and so high profile. L Brands was a public company. They had to do something. So they said they were hiring lawyers to conduct a thorough review. The firm is called Davis, Polk & Wardwell. It's a firm that the company has used as counsel for years. And also the law firm where Les Wexner's wife, Abigail, used to work. No information from this review was ever released to the public. And Wexner wasn't talking either. You know, if there was nothing there beyond what he says there is, I think he'd be a lot more forthcoming and give interviews. And and the fact that he's in such a defensive crouch around anything Epstein-related leads many people, including some of his closest friends, to suspect that there is a lot more there. But like, what? Everybody wanted to know. Tons of journalists were interested. And they didn't find much more than we found when we investigated this podcast. In Jeffrey Epstein's telling, he's just a financial whiz. That's why Wexner wanted him around. And according to Gabe, Epstein also sometimes portrayed himself as the surrogate son of a lonely billionaire. But was it creepier than a father-son relationship? There's no evidence that Wexner was part of the Epstein sex trafficking ring. Nobody has ever spoken publicly to say that they saw something untoward between the two men. So the nature of Les Wexner's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein this nearly 20-year-long con that Epstein ran on Wexner, it was still mysterious. It is still mysterious. 
In Gabe Sherman's article for Vanity Fair, he quotes a friend of Wexner's saying that he hopes when the whole truth comes out, Wexner is no longer alive to hear it. It's frustrating not to know exactly what happened there. I would love to share some of my opinions, but I am constrained by what we can say legally. But what we do know is that the Epstein arrest put Wexner on shaky footing. And between all of the pressure from brands like Third Love and the negative press and all the business stuff that we talked about, the stock was down nearly 30% in 2019. To staunch the bleeding, they had to nick something major. For the first time in 24 years, there wouldn't be a Technicolor kerosene-soaked lingerie megathon. Ratings had been down anyway. They wanted to evolve the marketing. The iconic Victoria's Secret fashion show. It's the most watched fashion event in the world. The Super Bowl of Fashion. Super Bowl of Fashion was canceled. It is the end of an era. The famous fashion show officially canceled. Their parent company says the brand must evolve as society's views on beauty have become more inclusive. The fashion show was canceled. So a lot of these dominoes started to fall pretty quickly. Now, breaking news from NBC4. L Brands nearing a deal to sell its Victoria's Secret brand to private equity firm Sycamore Partners. Sycamore is known for kind of getting down and dirty. So the pitch to investors is, have faith that Sycamore can turn things around in Victoria's Secret, and you can kind of ride it on the upside. Sycamore Partners was set to acquire a 55% share in Victoria's Secret, a huge amount. Take this problematic thing off their hands and into a new chapter. But for this new chapter to work, it would be nice if there was a clean slate. Wexner would have to leave day-to-day management to somebody else. We got some breaking news for you. L Brand CEO Lex Wexner is reportedly now in talks to step down. So as part of this deal, L Brand CEO Lex Wexner is stepping down as chairman and CEO. The deal with buyout firm Sycamore Partners seemed set to go through. But then there was spring 2020, and the world fell into a COVID-induced stupor. Victoria's Secret announced that they were going to close tons of stores. And suddenly, there were some issues getting that Sycamore deal closed. In fact, the deal was off. And sometime after that, an idea arose. Someone thought to themselves, I think we can do better without Sycamore. Let's fix Victoria's Secret on our own. We'll fight off all the Heidi Zacks, the Rihannas, all these little brands, and we will slay all of them. So now a new strategy was formed. Just spin off Victoria's Secret as a totally new public company. Go bang the gavel down there on Wall Street, make a new company that was divorced from Les Wexner, divorced from L Brands. In fact, Wexner sold over $2 billion in L Brands stock. He was gone. It was a new chapter for Victoria's Secret. One that had no connection to stick skinny angels or sexualized young girls in pink or an insular board of some stodgy old men looking out for other stodgy old men. But to sell that, they would need to pull off one of the most extensive and deeply strange brand image rehabilitation campaigns in American history. Next time on the final episode of Fallen Angel. 
like someone sent me a magazine article or like a newspaper article about Angel being over. I'm like, I don't. It's like funny that somebody thinks I care. Like, I really don't care. I think Victoria's Secret is at this fascinating crossroads where they finally, for the first time in a long time, have the future at their disposal. I'd like to be sort of positive in talking about the changes that we've seen, but I think they've been more PR moves than anything else, to be honest. Falling Angel is a documentary production from C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio, and Campside Media. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran for Cadence 13, and by me, Vanessa Gregoriadis, and Justine Harmon. Executive producers for Campside are Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Matt Scher. Narrated and written by Vanessa Gregoriadis and Justine Harmon. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Production led by Paige Heimsen. Edited by Alistair Sherman. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Production support and research by Ian Mant, Sean Cherry, Bob Tabador, Bill Schultz, Kelly Rafferty, Kelly Hitchcock, Natalia Winkleman, Aaliyah Papes, Sarah Patterson, Alex Yablon, and Doug Slaywin. Artwork and graphic design by Kurt Courtney. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swart, Moira Curran, Hilary Schuff, and Josephina Francis. Original music by Skyline Brigade. Our theme song is Heartbreak Hollywood by Ledesi. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. Will you ever break your spell? It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now, each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.